If you were here last Sunday or you listened online, you'll recall that Elisa, as our candidate, gave in her sermon a reflection on Luke's gospel about Jesus preaching in Nazareth, his hometown, for the first time. It was the gospel passage assigned for last Sunday. We've heard from the prophet passage assigned for this Sunday. Uh, You'll recall that last week it's the story of when he gets up to the temple in the town where he's grown up and he reads from the prophet Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it to the attendant, and that all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed upon him, and he began to speak to them, saying, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That is only half the story. Here's the other half from the Gospel of Luke. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? And Jesus said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do here in your hometown the things that we have heard you did in Capernaum, which were a lot of healings he had done there. And he said to them, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. The truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine and drought all over the land. Yet Elijah, the prophet, was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now when the people in the synagogue heard all of this, they were filled with rage. They got up, they drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But Jesus passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The good news of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Loving God, we give thanks for the words of Jeremiah, the words of Isaiah, the words of Jesus. And we pray that your word may speak to us and through us. That the words of our mouths and the meditations of all our hearts would be truly acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. And let the people say, Amen. So I like to think that in this passage from Luke, we don't actually get the whole sermon, because if you listen to it, it's hard to know exactly why they chased him to the edge of the cliff to hurl him off of it. I think there's a lot that was going on in the room and a lot that was going on in their shared history that we don't necessarily get in the scripture. But to summarize what Jesus is saying, one, I am a prophet, which might have been jarring to their ears and a little bit upstarty of him to say to them. And also he's saying, remember that this good news that Isaiah preached is not just for all of us on the inside, but it's for people on the outside. God came to this widow in Zarephath who was not an Israelite, and God healed Syrian the leper, down in the river, through the works of the prophet Elisha. He was an outsider and unclean, and we've got to rethink 
about who we let in the doors of the temple. We've got to rethink who's in because no one anymore should be out. Now, I imagine in that crowd today, and actually Matthew's Gospel gives you a little bit more of this, there was a lot of murmuring in the pews. Matthew says, they said, is not this Joseph's son? Is not this Mary's son? Is not this the brother of Judas and Simon? Was not he the carpenter's son? I imagine there were some other comments that we don't hear in Scripture, like, wasn't he the one who used to always drift off from his father's carpentry shop and go out and sit in with the rabbi, sneaking in with them, thinking he was good enough to be in them and learning about the scriptures? Wasn't he the one who kept wandering off in the fields and talking to God, we assume, but it seemed to himself, wasn't he the one who was a goody two-shoes in school and knew all the answers and did all the right things and was the teacher's pet? Wow, I hated him. <laughs> I imagine in the pews that day was the Galilean version of what we say in Massachusetts. What, you think you're better than me? <laughs> I think there was some of that in the air. So when he got up and said, I'm a prophet, and remember, here's what a prophet does, there was some resentment. I imagine sometimes you and I wish we had that kind of confidence to go into a room and say what needs to be said, to say the difficult thing, the hard thing, and to know that God is right behind us the whole time, and that even if we're marched out to the edge of the cliff, God will be with us to walk back through the crowd. I imagine some of us wish that if God were going to tell us what to say, it would be like Jeremiah. God would talk with us directly and have a little powwow and touch our mouths, just like the image on the cover of your order of worship as Mark Chagall depicted about 60 years ago, God reaching down and touching Jeremiah on the mouth. Or maybe we wish that in these days God would just send us an email or a list of talking points for every hard situation we go into. Or maybe we could just put a Bluetooth in the ear with a direct line to God to give us that courage and that conviction of what we should say in hard situations. You see, Jeremiah was a prophet, Jesus was a prophet, Isaiah was a prophet, and these passages make me wonder how you and I are called to be prophets. I imagine if God sent us that email or that list of talking points, we would think it was some spam. We would probably reject it. We would probably think it was crazy talk, and we would resist, as all the prophets resisted when God asked them to speak up, to say the hard truth that needed to be said. Now, this may be review for some of us, but I believe that what we do in church is all review. A prophet, we have grown up thinking, is someone who might predict the future. And we're reminded of that in Advent and Christmas when we hear about the scripture passages that say, this was to fulfill what the prophet said. But biblical prophets, more accurately, are people who try to envision what God wants. Who envision a place where God's idea of love and justice and compassion reign supreme. I believe in this day, the prophets who talk among us are the people who say, 
We need a world where everyone has access to affordable health care. I believe the prophets in this day say we need for everyone to be able to make a living wage. You see, prophets are the one who call us again to God's call that the strong help and protect the weak, that those with power and privilege have a responsibility to reach out and to support and lift up those who are poor and in need. And that whenever the world is out of sync with this, which is virtually all the time, prophets call us again and again to do that. And some of them, if they're really good, they give us the talking points and the, the steps to get us from here to there. But it leads me back to this question, are you and I called to be prophets? What would it look like if United Parish were known as a school for prophets? I believe it's actually in our vision, the vision that you all articulated before I got here, of calling, equipping, and serving. That all of us are called to do something of God's work, whether we do it in our professions or our avocations, that this can be a place that equips us to do that, and that we go out of here serving, coming back for refueling, for new ideas and new ways of doing thing, things. That's my vision of what church can be. It's a place where we come for the feel-good warmth of community, which nourishes us again and again, which I also believe is something that God wants for all of us. But sometimes God wants to propel us out of that warmth and that comfort to do some work on her behalf. One of my favorite preachers and commentators is a guy named Kyle Childress, who is a Baptist preacher down in Nacogdoches, Texas. A friend of mine says he's the best preacher you never heard of. He is a pretty progressive guy when it comes to preaching the gospel, and I know that some of you think that might not be possible in Texas, but Kyle is living proof of it. And a few years ago, he was reflecting on both of these texts, and it made him question what kind of community does it take to raise prophets like Jeremiah or even Jesus? What does it mean for our children, as they sang, to mend their hearts and find their voice? So there are a couple stories that he offered from his experience that I wanted to share with you. He said, you know, part of the problem is in the world he lives in, in between very conservative megachurches where the preacher often is an all-powerful sort of figure, people may not feel touched on the mouth in the pews. They may, may feel they just receive and go out. I tend to think that in those churches, the best calling and commissioning comes in their small groups. But he also says, at the same time, progressive or liberal churches might not be sure that it actually is God calling. Might it be hormones, or an overly active imagination, or even some sort of psychosis? People who hear the call of God. Kyle says that he was only seven or eight years old when a small town hero came home to their West Texas town, back from the war in Vietnam. He had lived three doors down from them, was a star on the high school uh, football team, and had been in his dad's Sunday school class before he went off to fight in the war. He came back with only one leg and a message. God told him, he said, that the war was wrong 
and that their church and their town needed to change their minds and hearts about racial segregation. Now, this veteran was never given the chance to stand in the pulpit and testify, but he did prophesy in casual conversation. And the results were the same. Everyone talked about what he said, what had happened to him over there in Vietnam, and whether or not the war had messed with his head. And one Sunday after church, Kyle's dad commented to his mom that perhaps the boy had some mental problems from Vietnam. But that didn't mean that what he said was wrong. And soon, Kyle's dad, as a member of the local school board, began pushing for the schools to be integrated. And though that young Vietnam veteran was never considered, a, or might not have considered himself a prophet, Kyle came to believe that he was. And although the church didn't really know what to do with him, this young man was formed by the members in that church and taught from the nursery on up that God speaks and God calls, and that our job is like that old Baptist hymn to trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. You see, when Jesus came to preach, and everyone in the congregation was really excited to hear what this hometown boy had to say, and that maybe he was on a fast track to be a successful rabbi with a large following, he began talking about some uncomfortable truths about how God reaches outside of the temple to other people. And that made everyone mad, and his career took a downturn and never recovered. In fact, as you know, he ended up being crucified on the cross while his hometown people just shook their heads. Kyle tells another story. About a few years ago, they had a tall, lanky, self-conscious seventh grade girl in his congregation who was on the junior high girls track team. Now, there was a Saturday track meet planned, and it was postponed to the next Saturday when the church was going to have a mini mission trip that this young girl had signed up for. She went to her track coach, and she told him about the conflict. And he said to her, your teammates are counting on you. You can't let them down. I expect you here for that meet. When that happened, she went home in tears. The next day, she talked to him again, and he responded, you are either here for the meet, or you turn in your uniform. There were more tears from her that night. She went to him a third time, handed in her uniform, and walked away. There are several responses to this in that community. Kyle says a lot of people would have wanted to go whip the coach, which would have been a standard Texas response, he says. <laughs> and some of the conservatives would have wanted to take over the school board and outlaw any school functions that conflict with church events. What happened was that there were a lot of parents who were upset but they were willing to go along with the coach. So they were surprised and even shocked when this seventh grade girl said, this is about God. You see, their own teenage girl was choosing God and church and the mission of God as she understood it over the track team. And this church was surprised even though that was the way they had raised her. Kyle says, I know, I know, the track team is not like race relations, standing up against the war or ending up on a cross. 
but profits all have to start somewhere. <laughs> Just want to close with this, which is that this week I received some words of prophecy and I wanted to share them with you. As you know, we've been doing a lot of work looking at how to end mass incarceration. There was a handful of us who went to a forum this week at the Boston Foundation downtown, a morning breakfast, and they had assembled a great panel of speakers talking about what it means to be put in jail in Massachusetts, a lot about the statistics, as well as what happens to people when they get out, and what predicts failure or success in the free society outside the walls of jail. There were a lot of people there from all sorts of good social organizations doing a lot of good work in this community who were hungry for some good words about how we could work on this problem and hungry to know where Massachusetts stood, which is not great. And so they had a sociologist from Harvard and they had the uh, research director from Mass Inc., which looks at policy issues. They had people from Texas telling about the good work they've done there to reduce incarceration, reaching across the aisle in the legislature, where they have fiscal conservatives concerned about the cost it has on society, as well as evangelicals who really believe in second chances and redemption, and Tea Party candidates who reach across with progressives to make laws work there. It took a lot of work, but it was impressive to hear from this woman who's now working in D.C. We also heard from work they're doing in Connecticut. They had the, pre the president of the District Attorneys Association for Massachusetts. But the person who seemed like the prophet to me on that panel was a guy who spoke up as the fifth speaker, the first African-American to speak on that panel. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised he was a prophet because in addition to his JD, he also had an MDiv. And he said, all these things we're talking about are important, but there's a foundational issue we're ignoring, which is the race issue, which is the issue of what happens to these folks before they ever get into the prison pipeline. He talked about what it means that black lives matter, and he also talked about white supremacy. And he said, now I know when I use the word white supremacist, you think of the KKK or lynch mobs, or maybe you think I'm talking about a bunch of old white men in some room trying to figure out what to do with people of color. That may exist, he said, but that's not what I'm talking about. He said, in a state where African Americans make up 6% of the population, but I think, and I'm paraphrasing the statistics, 54% of our prison population, or where 16% of our population is both Latino and African American, but they make up 75% of our prison population, we've got to be asking some hard questions. He said, white supremacy is when we value white lives and white neighborhoods and white property over black lives, black neighborhoods, and black property. I came in to work for staff meeting, and it was interrupted by the helicopters going overhead, because as you may have heard, there was a violent crime in our neighborhood this past week on Wednesday morning on St. Paul Street and later on Harvard Street. We locked down, as did several schools, and I went out to see what was going on, and people were going about their business, a lot of people ignorant of what had gone on. The health department said we could call it off and open our doors again, that they had found people in question. 
That evening, I was in a meeting with some of our leaders, and I told about what I'd heard that morning about white supremacy. And one of our leaders who dedicates his ministry and prophecy to helping with mental health in the Boston public schools said, yes, I'm aware of what happened in our community here in Brookline today, and I was disappointed because one of our students was killed today in Dorchester from a gunshot wound, and it got about 100 words in the Boston Globe, while the story about Brookline was all over the front page. And suddenly the words of the morning and the words of the evening came together for me about where I sit in the midst of this, and I thought about these two prophets I've heard and what I am called to do and what you are called to do. Our council has approved putting up a sign on our building that says Black Lives Matter. We're not the first church in the area to do that, but I think it's an important step. The next step, I think, is for us to think about how we talk, how we start, how we figure out the action steps from where we stand to what God imagines for us, how we speak day to day. You see, I think prophecy is not only about critique, but it's also about giving an encouraging word. It's also about speaking the truth in love. Sometimes it happens right in our homes when we tell the person with the addiction, you need to clean it up for the sake of the family. Sometimes it happens at work when we say there is an injustice here, whether small or large, that is going on. Sometimes it happens at school when we realize that people are not being treated fairly the way they should. Sometimes it's reaching out to an elder or a sick person to let them know that they have not been forgotten by us. Sometimes prophecy is helping the person on the street who's having a hard time or actually taking the time to talk to that person who's asking you for money and find out a little bit more of their story. I don't know what it is for you. I'm trying to figure out what it is for me. But prophets all start somewhere. And that's the charge we have today. Amen.